What is Christmas without ghost stories? That is a very important question. That only the elect few of the occult and paranormal species of mankind ever ask themselves or rather find themselves during the December Christmas season in the western English speaking world going against the grain at least in their surface level perspective and instead of filling their holiday with mirth and cheer comfortably numb with alcohol and treats and racing to outgift each other with their signs of wealth and love this select crowd these birds of a feather may flight towards ghost stories such as the uh, Christmas Carol. And once I said that, a lot of few people immediately recognized what I'm talking about. Immediately understand what I'm talking about as 100% true. If you guys out there like Christmas Carol... You know exactly what I'm talking about. That Christmas is a time for ghosts. A time of crossroads. Thinning veils between the living and the dead. Between the past, the present, and the future. Where on this day, things like timelessness... and temporality are one no two Christmases are ever the same but Christmas itself is always the same for everyone where did this come from where did we come from where do we belong where are we going these are the ghosts that haunt us every year's end for while some warm themselves on the yule fire and kiss under the mistletoe as children greedily claw at Christmas wrappings a select species gathers around in candlelit rooms in taverns and bars to exchange ghost stories. So that these ghosts may live forever in these spoken traditions. It is the gift that we can give to these restless spirits. I'll answer this question right now. I'll keep that short and sweet. This is as ancient as time immemorial, as primeval as the first tribes of mankind cast from the garden and while I can trace this back to literally what can be argued as the first she-devil to haunt mankind Lilith and her Lillian Spawn 
we could easily trace her back as well to Tiamat, the Chthonic Dragon Mother of all chaos. With that which by the time the patriarchs of Western civilization that we call the ancient Greeks existed to chronicle the practices and engage in their ritual worship of these idols. She was known as Hecate. Hecata. Hecate. Appropriately, many pronunciations for the single name of the goddess of sorcery. A goddess whose territory are the crossroads. And the long nights of winter. The crossroads, like the cross on the shortened X miss, as well as the symbolic spiritual crossroads, as described during the significantly emotional occult rituals of shared lunacy that we call holidays. Now for the long answer. For those whose curiosities have been stoked aflame, let me continue. First, by explaining the practices and perceptions in the worship of Hecate. And then, leading through the heritage of ghost stories in modern Christmas. And I will leave it mostly to you, listeners out there in dreamland, to make the connections, to connect the dots, and to read the writing on the wall. About the true nature and origins of the holiday we call Christmas. that has nothing to do with Christ's Mass. Unless you're referencing Christ's Massacre. From neosalexandria.org Alexandria Reborn is the article on modern practices and perceptions in the worship of Hecate. Written by Lycaea. When talking, when taking into consideration the majority of general pagans out there who worship Hecate, it is disturbing to see how many align Hecate with a very narrow function. Hecate is granted queenship of the underworld. The temptation is there, of course, to ask what happened to Persephone, but that will generally be met with a firm belief that Hecate ruled the underworld before Persephone, acting as a matriarch to a princess, regardless of the fact that evidence indicates that she was not a true underworld goddess. In the rape of Persephone, Hecate was not located within the underworld, but rather within a specific cave. A cave is a moderation point between the worlds of the living and the dead, and therefore associated with many chthonic pastoral gods of ancient lineage. Think the cave of Pan, or of Kronos, 
It was at this vantage point that Hecate was a witness or a gatekeeper. Other than declaring herself as Persephone's handmaiden later in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, and with Hermes' aid guiding the goddess back to the world of the living, Hecate doesn't have a lot of direct influence over the underworld like Pluto does. Another example would be or Pluto or Hades, Hades in the Greek traditions. Another example would be her function in the Aeneid, where she had to be drawn from her caves that lay at the passage into the underworld so that Aeneas could slip past and within, this solidifying her role as a guardian. More commonly, she is associated with ghosts instead of the living, and is seldom mentioned as literally being in the underworld, other than in reference to Hecate's lunar light traveling to the underworld and the moon when it is absent from the sky, being recognized as with Hecate in her cave. Rather than an underworld goddess, Hecate is more likely a goddess of transition between life and death. Her diepnon, or a feast, was offered not in either traditional chthonic or celestial practice. Neither was it buried nor burned as an offering, but rather it was left out in a manner appropriate to a goddess between the worlds and offered at the crossroads where spirits lurked. At birth, Hecate is there, and at death, Hecate is there. There must be a reason why dead women accompany the goddess. Why wouldn't they if she were leading them to a place of their final rest? They are spoken of very generically in a manner that would suggest this is not the same group of old dead women accompanying her everywhere. Unlike Artemis and her specific nymphs and hounds, it is unlikely to be a permanent crowd, but rather as she wanders the night, she draws the souls of dead to her train of followers. She doesn't rule over the underworld, but she is a queen over these earthbound ghosts temporarily, existing between the worlds. From the cemetery, the grave, to the gates of Hades which they would have to take the ferry boat, Charon, the boatmaster, through the rivers, not Styx, mind you, I believe it's the Achaeon. Styx is a river of forgetfulness that is in Hades. So her place is thus. She is the ruler of the dead on earth, solidifying her role as transitionary. She is one thing in the place of the other. She is there during birth and she is there during death. Those who died violently before their time was up, much as Hecuba, are in her company and grieving wives. A Priam who Hecate took in the form of a night black dog travel with her. But even these angry spirits are unlikely to stay with her forever. Even dogs themselves are connected to both the land of the living and that of the dead. Friend of men, the baying hounds of Hecate and Artemis and the guarding Kerberos, the dogs are very much part of our living lives and those of the gods, 
Unlike dragons, which have a history associated with chthonic goddesses such as Gaia and Demeter, the fact that dogs were offered in sacrifice to Hecate says much about this. Hecate has been linked to the whelping bitch as a fertility symbol bearing her litter of pups who nurses from her teats and matures. This is highly representative of her nature and presiding over fertility, virility. As much as goats who get a bad rap for their later associations with Satanism, Akate appears as both and receives sacrifices of both gods and uh, dogs and goats. The fertile earth gives way to death and life renews again. Keep this in mind when thinking about Rome and its origin legends of Romulus and Remus suckling at the teats of a she-wolf who through her milk nurtured and sustained two human men until they were superhuman in virility. To the unillumined, to the uninitiated, to the layman, it is a fanciful story of two twins raised by wolves. To the initiated, to the adept, to the warlock and to the lumined, I, the open-eyed men of the world, we see that Rome has its origins in the goddess Hecate. Literally being the patron goddess of Rome itself. However, the crossroads seems to be the most well-known component in Hecate worship. And it wouldn't be since the crossroad goddess looked in three ways. And that is a very popular in Hecatean art. Though it does seem to be stressed primarily as the spot where Hecate lurks more than anything else. For one would leave feasts at the go- for the goddess at these crossroads. <clears throat> These feasts were given to the goddess in preparation and purification for the coming of the new month. By the very nature of the feast belonging neither wholly to a heavenly god nor the chthonic gods below, it invited the hungry poor to feast at her plate. Whether this was viewed as acceptable can be debated, but there were those who took advantage of the goddess's feasts of the lower ranks of society. With this in mind, there is a grisly fascination with the crossroad goddess and her feasts as it inspires the imagination of wandering spirits, snarling wild hounds, and the goddess with the serpentine hair wandering on her darkest night. Now keep in mind that a lot of the Christian traditions are of Christmas are Christian in name only. When thinking of the Christmas carol, for example, what is the end game for Scrooge, what is his final act of repentance that symbolizes the fact that he is a new man? It is the purchasing of a Christmas goose so uh, for Cratchit, his employer, his employee, and then eating with him like a Saturnalian tradition and worshiper would as an equal, but providing for the poor... Uh, donating to, you know, workhouses, soup kitchens, etc., being the implication there that the rich would give back on Christmas to the poor 
in the form of feasts. Connection both with Saturnalia worship and with a feast left out to the public for anyone to come and grab their fill of. For it belonged neither to the gods in heaven, the celestial gods, nor the gods below of the underworld. And it because it's a transitionary, literally a a unclaimed, or rather, um, those that claim it are the personifications of Hecate. Because Hecate is of this world. She is of all worlds. The image persists, accompanied by her control of sorcery, when you get right down to it. Hecate is not really depicted as a sorceress, however, the controller of all sorcery. However, as a goddess that illuminates the hidden, it would be common knowledge for her, all men's secrets, as well as all men's wisdom, she is presented more frequently in teaching the arts to those who are favored by her. As a goddess of the sea, she can whisper about the powers of the sea that can be harnessed by men. As a goddess of the earth, she can whisper of the growing things that can be gathered and used as medicines. And in her connection with the moon, she can tell of how to ensnare the love and attention of the young. And as such, her starry heavenly realm, she guides the course for the good days of planting, gathering, and this guide can be equally useful in sorcery of all kinds. So while she aids and instructs the sorceress and sorcerer, it is more in her revealing and all-knowing capacity rather than as a literal goddess of sorcery or source of magic. Though despite this, there is no denying that she does preside over the magical and mystical being the patron matriarch of most magic users. Overall, there is little support for the doom and gloom. Hecate is valued by so many as a terrible goddess. In pop culture, she is considered villainous, serpentine, and chthonic. She is an awesome goddess with a primal power that will invoke fear to those who are not familiar with her. Primal is the best description for her as it illustrates her nature as being one of wilderness and natural law. The raw power of a titanus connected intimately with the natural world, the world of snakes, wild dogs, and goats. We depend on her to eat whether in gathering fish or having fruitful herds, for these things are within her hands. Fertility, life, and death, remember, are cardinal directions. The sexual urge to mate and reproduce is hers as a lunar goddess. The mother to nurture from her own flesh as a birthing goddess in these things, she shares her world with Hermes, who, like her, assist the dead back to the final abode, masters to their lost herds, and travelers between their destinations. Hermes Tresmegistus also shares his symbols with Hecate, the Chthonic snakes across the Cardusus, the goats 
of Mendes. And in barking dogs. She exists outside the civilization even as she is at our roads and our homes. There she exists walking all roads of the earth below and between us and the gods. Civilization cannot exist without the consent of the wilderness. The Latins claimed Diana as goddess of civilization even as the Romans recognized the contribution of Sylvanus. Hecate straddles both worlds, civilization and wilderness. She straddles the worlds of the living and the dead. Probably not such a far stretch in associations considering that forests are considered dangerous places filled with predators and unseen hazard. But what then of the night? Isn't the night under her domain and associated with death and danger? True, she is associated with the night, but as the nocturnal light within the night. The bright light of the full moon sheds enough light to see comfortably by. Enough so that particularly bright moons are called hunter's moons. She illuminates without dispelling the darkness. Even her governing of the starry nights and heavens is governed by the brilliance of lights sparkling. She does not dispel the dark for it is in the night that she shields the lovers embrace and keeps their secret. And in this fashion she has been called the handmaiden of Aphrodite. For Hecate can conceal even as she reveals. She is both the brilliant light and the dark blanket of night. And in this way, she is a light bringer, a dark angel of light. Who do we in this Christian modern world know as the bringer of light, as a angel of light, Lucifer. I'll say that again. Just like Hermes Tresmegistus is a role model of the modern concept of Lucifer that's worshipped by the Freemasons and other lumined circles. Hecate is the female progenitor and role model of Lucifer and things that we know of as supernatural are belonging to the world of sorcery. That's all your Harry Potter shit. That's all your uh, haunted house ghost lore, which is important and relevant to this. That's all your... um, getting lost in the woods woodcraft and the different merging of various forest and chthonic practices into the civilized world that evolved from these practices but never erase them. As Rome grew from a small pirate settlement to the largest and most powerful center of administration, the largest and most powerful city in Europe, and that 
empire shifted and evolved to Constantinople in the east and Londinium in the west. And Londinium shifted from Roman rule to Arthurian court to the signing of the Magna Carta, the Golden Age, into the Great British Empire, and into Greater Britannia, we find ourselves in the Victorian era of England. One continuous evolutionary lineage that is direct and unbroken. And who walks now on those dirty city streets of Victorian age London, belonging to no one world but all? At once, Hecate. This is the nature of Hecate, one that is both simple and complex at the same time, often contradictory, and one that needs to be taken into more account by the general population, especially those that unknowingly worship and serve her. According to History.com, History.com, the website for the History Channel. These are not my own words, by the way. Everything is, that I say, is always very laboriously researched. How ghost stories became a Christmas tradition in Victorian England. Spooky stories featuring the supernatural were all the rage during the darkest times of the year. Towards the end of each year, as fireplaces are lit and hot cocoa is made, Americans have made it a tradition to revisit their favorite classic holiday books, movies, and songs. And though ghost stories may seem out of place in present-day American holiday celebrations, they were once a Christmas staple, reaching their peak of popularity in Victorian England. A dark, spooky time of year. Like most long-standing cultural customs, the precise origin of telling ghost stories at the end of the year is unknown, largely because it began as an oral tradition without written records. But according to Sarah Clito, a folklorist specializing in British literature and co-founder of the Carterhow School of Folklore and the Fantastic, the season around the winter solstice has been one of transition and change. For a very, very, very long time, the season has provoked oral stories about spooky things in different countries and cultures all over the world, she says. Furthermore, spooky storytelling gave people something to do during the long, dark evenings before electricity. The long midwinter nights meant folks had to stop working early, and they spent their leisure hours huddled close to the fire, says Tara Moore an assistant professor of English at Elizabethtown College, author of Victorian Christmas in Print, and editor of the Valancourt Book of Victorian Christmas Ghost Stories. Plus, you didn't need to be illiterate to retell the local ghost story you had heard the year before. Effects of the Industrialization Revolution it was in Victorian England that telling supernatural tales at the end of the year, specifically during the Christmas season, went from an oral tradition to a timely trend. This was in part due to the development of the steam-powered printing press during the Industrial Revolution that made the written word more widely available to the masses. This gave Victorians the opportunity to commercialize and commodify existing oral ghost stories, turning them into a version they could sell. 
Capitalism being all the rage, higher literacy rates from educations, cheaper printing costs from manufacturing, and more periodicals being printed by writers meant the editors needed and could fill pages, Moore says. Around Christmas time, they figured they could convert the old storytelling traditions to a printed version. People who moved out of their towns and villages and into larger cities still wanted access to the supernatural sagas they had heard around the fireplace growing up. Quote, Fortunately, Victorian authors like Elizabeth Gaskill, Margaret Oliphant, and Arthur Conan Doyle worked through the fall to cook up these stories so they could have them ready to print in time for Christmas, Moore says. Industrialization not only provided tools to distribute spooky stories, uncertainty during the era also fueled interest in the genre, says Brittany Warman, a folklore specializing in Gothic literature and co-founder of the Carterhouse School of Folklore and the Fantastic. Interest was driven, she says, by the rise of industrialization, the rise of science, and the looming fall of Victorian Britain as a superpower. All of these things were in people's minds and made the world seem a lot darker and a lot scarier. This is in context of the King George 1700s, which went so well for England, by the way. Stories find a wide-ranging audience. Telling horror-filled holiday tales continues to be a familiar affair in England, even when they were read rather than recited. We know from illustrations and diaries that whole families read these periodicals together, Moore says. The popularity of Victorian Christmas ghost stories also transcended socioeconomic status, according to Moore. They were available to read everywhere, from cheap publications to newspapers to expensive Christmas annuals, and the middle-class ladies would show off their coffee table books that were beautifully bound and decorated with illustrations. Their broad audience was reflected in the stories themselves as well, which sometimes centered around working-class characters and other times took place in haunted manor houses and the Gothic tradition. These upper-class settings were intended to invite readers from all classes into an idealized upper-crust Christmas, the type today's fans of Downton Abbey still enjoy as entertainment, Moore adds. The Charles Dickens Effect Charles Dickens changed the world with an 1843 novella published called A Christmas Carol. This forever linked the British with the holiday season, but contributions to Christmas in Victorian England especially included the tradition of telling and reading ghost stories, which this novella capitalized on. This extended far beyond Jacob Marley's visit to Scrooge. In fact, Cleto says that Dickens played a huge part in popularizing the genre abroad, but he wrote a bunch of different Christmas novellas, several of which involved ghosts. Specifically, she says, and then he started editing more and more Christmas ghost stories from other people into anthologies and working those into magazines he was already editing, and that just caught on like wildfire. Dickens also helped shape Christmas literature in general, Moore says, by formalizing expectations about themes like forgiveness and reunion during the holiday season. American Christmas Traditions They became more syrupy than spooky. Although countless trends made their way from England to America during the Victorian era, the telling of ghost stories during the Christmas season was not one that really caught on. A Christmas Carol was an immediate bestseller in the United States at the time of its publication, 
Dickens was arguably the most famous writer in the world already, wildly popular in the United States as well. The novella's success in the U.S. likely had more to do with Dickens' pre-existing massive fan base than it did Americans' interest in incorporating the supernatural into Christmas. American Christmas scenes and stories tended to be syrupy sweet affairs, Moore explains. There were a few American writers of the period trying to put Victorian-style Christmas ghost stories into American culture. Warman says, including Nathaniel Hawthorne and Henry James. Washington Irving made a similar and earlier attempt slipping the supernatural into Christmas-themed short stories published popularly in 1819 and 1820. Warman theorizes that Americans' reluctance to embrace the Christmas ghost story tradition had to do at least in part with the country's attitudes towards things like magic and superstitions. In America, she says, we generally had a bit of resistance to the supernatural in a way that European countries never have. When you come to America, you came with a fresh start. You came with a secular mindset and the idea that you were leaving all of the past behind. Some of these spooky superstitions were thought of being part of this now obsolete identity. Another reason telling spooky stories never took off as a Christmas tradition in the United States was because it became more firmly established as a Halloween tradition, thanks to the large numbers of Irish and Scottish immigrants. That really impacted the culture here, because they brought with them a concept similar to Halloween and that became, for America, the specific time period for the telling of ghost stories. Warman explains. Traces of the Tradition Other than a Christmas carol, there is another piece of pop culture that reflects the Victorian Christmas tradition well. A single line from a song written and released in the 1960s by American musicians. First recorded by Andy Williams, the song, quote, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, arguably one of the most popular Christmas carols of all, or Christmas songs of all time, lists, quote, scary ghost stories as one of the highlights of the holiday season. It is unclear why the writers of the song included the tradition but it's possible that the lyric is a reference to the popularity of Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's the only one text, she notes, but it's such a big deal here in the U.S. and the U.K., and it's pretty much all that Americans know about Christmas ghost stories and their worldview. This next article was provided by SmithsonianMagazine.com. SmithsonianMag.com. So I think these are pretty mainstream sources of academic, you know, effect, basically, right? Good, good trumpets for, you know, legitimate sources of information. We'll say that. This is an article written called A Plea to Resurrect Christmas Traditions of Telling Ghost Stories. To kind of just keep smashing you guys in the head with the hammer that ghost stories and Christmas are traditions regardless if you accept them or not. Though the practice is now more associated with Halloween, spooking out your family is well within the Christmas spirit. This was published in 2017. For the last hundred years, Americans have kept ghosts in their place, letting them out only in October, in the run-up to our only real haunted holiday, Halloween. But it wasn't always this way. 
And it's no coincidence that the most famous ghost story in the world is a Christmas story. The most famous Christmas story in the world is a ghost story. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol was first first published in 1843, and its story about a man tormented by a series of ghosts the night before Christmas belonged to a once rich, now mostly forgotten tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Dickens' supernatural yuletide terror was no outlier, since much for the 19th century was the holiday indisputably associated with ghosts and specters. Whenever five or six English-speaking people meet around a fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. This was said by humorist Jerome K. Jerome in 1891's collection, Told After Supper. Nothing, quote, nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters. It is genial, festive, and we love to muse upon graves and dead bodies and murders and blood. End quote. Telling ghost stories during winter is a hallowed tradition. A folk custom stretches back centuries, when families would while away the winter nights with tales of spooks and monsters. A sad tale's best for winter, said Mamelis in his Shakespeare's uh, play, The Winter's Tale. Quote, I have one of sprites and goblins, end quote, and the titular Jew of Malta in Christopher Marlowe's play at one point muses, quote, Now I remember those old women's words, who in my wealth would tell me winter's tales and speak of spirits and ghosts by night, end quote. Based in folklore and the supernatural, it was a tradition for the Puritans to frown upon these, so it never gained much traction in their American colonies. Washington Irving helped resurrect a number of forgotten Christmas traditions in the early 19th century, but it really was Dickens who popularized the notion of telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve. The Christmas issues of the magazines he edited, including Household Worlds, a words, household words, all the year round, etc., included ghost stories, and not just his Christmas Carol, but also works like The Chimes and The Haunted Man, both of which also feature an unhappy man who changes his ways after visitations by ghosts. Dickens' publications were not just winter-themed, but explicitly linked to Christmas, That's right, they were not just winter-themed, but specifically linked to Christmas. They helped forge a bond between the holiday and the common ghost stories popular at the time. Christmas Eve, he would claim in in quote, The Seven Poor Travelers, written in 1854, is, quote, the witching time for storytelling, end quote. Dickens discontinued the Christmas publications of 1868, complaining to his friend Charles Fector that he felt, quote, as if he had murdered a Christmas number years ago. Perhaps I did, and its ghost perpetually haunts me, end quote. But by then, the ghost of Christmas ghost stories had taken on an afterlife of its own, and other writers rushed to fill the void that Dickens had left. By the time of Jerome K. Jerome's 1891 Told After Supper book, he could casually joke about a tradition long ensconced in Victorian culture. In some of those latter ghost stories, they haven't entered the Christmas's canon as Dickens' work did. There's perhaps a reason as William Dean Howells would lament in Harper's Editorial Magazine in 1886, the Christmas ghost tradition suffered from the gradual loss of Dickens' sentimental morality. 
Quote, The ethical intention which gave dignity to Dickens' Christmas stories of still earlier date almost wholly disappeared. End quote. While readers could suspend their disbelief for the supernatural, believing that such terrors could turn a man like Scrooge good overnight was a harder sell. Quote, People always knew that character was not changed by a dream in a series of tableau. That a ghost cannot do much towards reforming an inordinately selfish person. That a life cannot be turned white like a head of hair in a single night. But the most allegorical apparitions, and gradually they ceased to make believe that there was virtue in these devices and appliances. Dickens' genius was to wed the gothic horror and terror with the sentimental and the traditional, using ghost stories and goblins to reaffirm basic bourgeois ideals and values. As the traditions evolved, however, writers were less wedded to the social vision of idealism, preferring the simply scary. In Henry James's famous gothic novella, The Turn of the Screw, the frame story involves a group of men sitting the fire, sitting around a fire telling ghost stories on Christmas Eve, setting off a story of pure terror without any pretension to charity or sentimentality. At the same time, the tradition of Christmas ghosts has begun to ossify, losing the initial spiritual charge that drove its popularity. A new tradition is being imported from across the Atlantic, carried by a huge wave of Scottish and Irish immigrants coming to America. This tradition was known as Halloween. The holiday, as we know it now, is an odd hybrid of Celtic and Catholic tradition. It borrows heavily from the ancient pagan holiday, Sam Wayne, Samhain, which celebrates the end of the harvest season and the onset of winter. As with the numerous other pagan holidays, Samhain was in time merged with the Catholic festival of All Souls Day, which could also be tinged towards obsessions with the dead. Halloween, a time when the dead are revered, the boundaries between this life and the afterlife are thinnest, and this is when ghosts and goblins rule the night. Carried by Scottish and Irish immigrants to America, Halloween did not immediately displace Christmas as the preeminent holiday for ghosts, partly because the several decades it was a holiday for Scots and Scots alone. Scottish immigrants, and to a lesser extent the Irish immigrants in their community, tried to disassociate Halloween from its ghostly implications, trying unsuccessfully to secularize it to make it about Scottish heritage. As Nicholas Rogers notes in this Halloween from Pagan Ritual to Party Night book, quote, There were efforts, in fact, to recast Halloween as a day of decorous ethnic celebrations only. End quote. Organizations such as the Celadonian Society in Canada observed Halloween with Scottish dances and music and the poetry of Robbie Burns. While in New York, the Gaelic Society commemorated Halloween with Sanchez, an evening of Irish poetry, music, and feasting. Americans hunger for ghosts and nightmares, however, and this outweighs their hunger for Irish and Scottish culture, and Americans seized on Halloween's supernatural terror rather than cultural respect aspects. And we all know how this turned out the truly uh, unique American Halloween. The transition from Christmas to Halloween as the preeminent holiday for the ghost was an uneven one. Even as late as 1915, Christmas annuals of magazines were still dominated by ghost stories, and Florence Kingsland's 1904 Book of Indoor and Outdoor Games still lists ghost stories as fine, polite society celebrations on Christmas. The realm of spirits, quote, was always thought to be nearer to that of mortals on Christmas than at any other time, 
end quote. For decades, these two celebrations of the oncoming winter bookended a time when ghosts were in the air and we kept the dead close to mind. My own family has for years invited friends over around the holidays to tell ghost stories. Instead of exchanging gifts, we exchange ghost stories. True or invented. It doesn't matter. People are inevitably sheepish at first, but once the stories start flowing, the natural attraction isn't long before everyone has something to offer. It's a refreshing alternative to the oft-forced yuletide joy and commercialization the resurrecting the dead traditions of ghost stories as another way to celebrate Christmas is a way to preserve Christmas for the future. In a Harper editorial, the editor Howells laments the loss of Dickensian ghost stories, waxing nostalgic for a return to a scary story set firmly in the world of morals. Quote, It was well once a year, if not oftener, to remind men by parable of the old simple truths, to teach them that forgiveness and charity and the endeavor for life better and purer than each has lived are the principles upon which alone the world holds together and goes forward. And as well for the comfort and the refined to be put in mind of the savage and the suffering all around them and to be taught, as Dickens always teaches, that certain feelings which grace human nature as tenderness for the sick and helpless, self-sacrifice and generosity, self-respect and manliness and womanliness are the common heritage of the race, the direct gift of heaven shared equally by rich and poor. End quote. Now as the night darkens and we head towards the new year, filled with anxieties and hopes, what better emissaries are there to bring such a message than the ghosts of the dead and the tellers of their stories? So for those listening to you out there in dreamland, and I've gotten to this point in the episode, such late in the game, thank you for sticking around, by the way. Thank you very much sticking around towards the end. But keep that in mind. Next time you watch The Christmas Carol, next time you think about Scrooge, next time you think about something like The Grinch, even. Consider telling your own ghost story at Christmas. Consider paying attention to Christmas media and taking note of any symbolism that can help explain the ancient mysteries that these holidays are truly based on. And if you aren't believing in ghost stories, I suggest you do. Because you're in one. This Xmas. Thank each and every one of you out there in Dreamland. Namaste and Salaam. Iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. God bless you and your families. Peace out.